Hey, it's Mark. Rare Disease Day is an awareness event that takes place every year on the last day of February, either February 28th like this year or in leap years of 29th, which is the rarest of calendar dates. This is by design to underscore the nature of these diseases and to focus public attention on orphan conditions as a public health concern. In addition to investment in rare disease therapeutics and patient-led advocacy, another soft indicator of the success of these efforts is the level of pharma-backed celebrity or influencer campaigns. Number 51, Bernie Williams. And one of the most notable of these is Bernie Williams' partnership with Beringer Ingelheim on a national respiratory campaign known as Breathless to raise awareness of a group of rare lung conditions. The latest phase of the campaign explores how music may support those living with these conditions. And I was fascinated to learn that Williams views his longtime involvement in disease advocacy as his way of processing the loss of his father, which came during his storied Yankees career. It quickly became clear that, for Williams, this was no ordinary celebrity endorsement, but something much deeper and personal. And I wanted to explore that with him for the podcast. When I reported on the campaign last year, Williams wasn't available. But to their credit, the BIPR team was able to make a guest appearance happen, in the virtual studio at least, a couple of weeks ago. So in honor of Rare Disease Day, we'll have my full interview with Yankees legend and jazz guitarist Bernie Williams. Lesh has taken the week off. Jack, what's on tap on the healthcare social media front? Yeah, Mark. So this week's episode, we'll be talking about Woody Harrelson's recent controversial remarks about the COVID-19 pandemic, the vaccines, and the fallout afterwards during his SNL monologue. I'm Mark Iskowitz, Editor-at-Large, and welcome to the MMM Podcast, medical marketing media's show about healthcare marketing writ large. We're honored to be joined by Bernie Williams, Yankees legend turned Latin Grammy nominee. Bernie has his own rare disease story to tell. He began working with Beringer Ingelheim and the Pulmonary Fibrosis Foundation on a national respiratory campaign known as Breathless several years ago. It's designed to raise awareness of interstitial lung disease, or ILD. The term ILD refers to a group of rare lung conditions that includes the one Bernie's dad, Bernabe, ultimately succumbed to, called idiopathic pulmonary fibrosis, or IPF. Since then, he's become a leading advocate, appearing at major and minor league baseball stadiums, as well as other venues around the country, strumming his jazz guitar, telling his story, and drawing attention to the effort. The latest phase of the campaign is called Tune Into Lung Health, a program exploring how music may help support those with ILD. Bernie, this interview is a long time coming. Thanks so much for joining us today. Oh, thank you so much for having me here. Absolutely. So you played for 16 years baseball, all of it with the New York Yankees. And I thought we'd start with how you got into music. Do you want to talk about how your father's guitar playing kind of ignited your own passion for music? Yeah, yeah, of course. Uh, my, my dad was a merchant marine. And in, uh, in the years that he sort of decided to kind of stay in dry land and raise us, he had already had an extensive uh, story, a uh, history of his travels. In one of those travels, he came up with uh, a Spanish guitar that he bought in Spain, and he bought a book, and he taught himself how to play uh, most of the uh, chords, and he kind of like wanted to, uh, he liked playing the traditional Puerto Rican music, uh, you know, all the boleros, all the Christmas stuff, and uh, I remember listening to him when I was about seven or eight years old. And then I decided to ask him if he could uh, teach me a little bit how to, you know, how to play. Uh, he did, of course, taught me my first couple of chords. And from that moment on, I, I felt this uh, great passion for music. Uh, 
I had a guitar with me. I took classes with my uh, uh, sort of a neighborhood uh, teacher. And then I had an opportunity to go to uh, performing arts high school uh, when I was in ninth grade. Uh, finished my high school uh, with that, in, in that particular performing arts high school. And it sort of catapulted my <laughs> my uh, journey in, in, in music. Uh, but it was uh, certainly because of him and he was the one that uh, sort of planted that seed in my, in my heart. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And of course, you know, recognition followed, you know, you, you um, nominated for Grammy awards, uh, with, with your, uh, musicianship. And after the, uh, unfortunate passing of your dad, music helped you deal with, with a loss. Can you talk about how, you know, you view music as being a, a kind of coping mechanism? Uh, it was really important because music, and I didn't realize it at the time, is such a powerful tool. I started uh, sort of uh, uh, in, a, in a therapeutic kind of way to put my thoughts. Uh, some people put, uh, put them in writing, you know, after a catastrophic or very traumatic episode in their lives. And I decided just to put it in music. And I wrote a song titled, entitled Para Lumberna, which is, you know, the way that we uh, call my dad for short. And that song became a part of the Journey Within CD that was released. And uh, it was just basically my tribute to, you know, how much appreciation I I had for him and, and what he did uh, to make me the person that I am today. And it was, it was great. You know, I was uh, able to uh, make different arrangements of that particular tune. in uh, the campaign that I'm kind of working with right now has... Uh, great emphasis in utilizing music as a coping mechanism to deal with the uh, symptoms of uh, having all these interstitial lung diseases, uh, things that could happen like depression and anxiety, and not only for the patients, but for the caregivers and family members and uh, people of interest as well. So uh, it's, uh, it's a great thing. To have is a great thing to utilize, and I have to help me in, in, in a great way to deal with the passing and the grief process in the passing of my dad. Yeah, and uh, we'll talk about that song, Paradon Berna, a little bit later. Um, and, you, and you also mentioned something that I wanted to key in on, and that is the role as a caregiver. That, that's sometimes overlooked, you know, when we talk about aspects of, of rare diseases, right? Can you kind of elaborate on that? Yes, uh, of course. I mean, I had a task and uh, obviously a, a responsibility to do everything that I could in my power to take care of my father from the moment that uh, we, he was diagnosed with uh, idiopathic pulmonary fibrosis. We took it upon ourselves uh, to get him the best care that he needed and try to come up with the best uh, solution to uh, mitigate and uh, deal with his symptoms, knowing that this is a disease that uh, eventually will uh, take his life away, uh, trying to deal with the quality of his life. But I will be remiss if I don't mention uh, the uh, efforts of my, the rest of my family, namely my brother, my younger brother, and my mom at the time. Uh, they took most of the physical brunt of taking care of my father, uh, you know, the day-to-day, kind of like, you know, taking him to doctor appointments and, uh, uh, you know, eventually being in the hospital. Uh, because I, I couldn't. I was uh, playing baseball. I was already immersed in the middle of my season with the Yankees, and I did everything that I could to be there personally. Uh, but I, it was uh, impossible for me to be in two places at the same time. So I got to give a lot of credit to my family, my uh, my brother, my mom, and uh, all my relatives to uh, step in and uh, 
uh, be able to support him in that way, uh, you know, up until the last day. Sure. Well, you gave people a lot of joy, you know, in your career. So um, it's wonderful that your family was able to step up uh, and help. Uh, and now you're, you're giving back. Um, as you explained in your Tune Into Lung Health Initiative, you see the effort as a way to help others that are suffering from ILD to find the information they need, quote unquote, earlier and more quickly than your family did. Um, talk about where people can go to get more information. Well, yes. Uh, thank you so much for mentioning that. Uh, we have a great website called tuneintolonghealth.com where people can go in and get information. Uh, I think a, a lot of uh, you know the things that we were lacking back when my dad was ill was the lack of information, the lack of uh, having a comprehensive method of action and uh, understanding the disease and understanding what kind of resources we had at the time. And that's you know the thing that I really think that it could be very helpful to people when they're facing a situation like this, having an understanding of what they're dealing with and uh, having access to resources that could help them make educated decisions as far as, you know, the quality of life of the patient and their loved ones. And that's where these, uh, uh, this uh, uh, website comes into play where, you know, you can get information about the in- interstitial lung diseases. I mean, by the way, Idiopathic pulmonary fibrosis is part of an umbrella of about 200 of these uh, interstitial lung diseases that are, uh, you know, currently affecting a lot of people in the world and particularly in the United States. So uh, I think it's great information to have. And uh, uh, we're uh, utilizing, trying to utilize music as a resource uh, to deal with the anxiety and the depression that uh, some of these diseases may cause to all these people involved in this process. Yeah. And as you point out, there's there's not only a physical aspect, uh, you know, the lung scarring, um, and, uh, also a mental health aspect uh, to it. And there's a lot of great resources on that website. Um, you know, vocal exercises, patient stories, uh, to, to help people cope. Um, your, your story has allowed uh, Beringer to, to reach millions of people across the country, uh, with, with these messages about awareness and, and, you know, recognizing signs and symptoms and, and the need for timely care. So, it, you know, from what I hear, it's really making an impact. That said, you've been partnering, you know, with this company since 2017, I believe. That's that's a number, good number of years there. So it's it's clearly very important to you personally. So just wondering if you could tell us more about, you know, what not only what you know drove you initially to partner, but what keeps you involved. You know, what what motivates you to uh, continue to uh, stay involved in this and make it such a signature effort. Well, I, I've seen firsthand the impact that uh, our message has been in, in people that are. Uh, affected by by these uh, illnesses prior to 2020. Uh, you know, you mentioned 2017. I mean, it's for three years. I was really hands-on traveling uh, to all these places that uh, baseball have has given me a platform to speak on behalf of this cause. And uh, I've got I've gotten great uh, positive feedback. You know, from uh, patients. You know, get a chance to hear the story. And by the way. Uh, it has been a, a great way for me to process uh, still the, the grieving process that I've, I've got over the years. And uh, when I, my dad passed away in 2001, uh, like I said before, I was immersed in the season and I was doing a lot of things that didn't really allow me to fully go through my grieving process uh, with my dad and everything that has happened. I sort of kept living life uh, year after year, you know, playing baseball, and I sort of put that in the back burner. Uh, until I retired and I was able to be a part of this campaign has been 
in many ways very therapeutic for me to relive those emotions and actually share them with people and tell my story and the story of my family through this ordeal and listening to other people's similar stories uh, about their loved ones and uh, even patients, you know, talking to me, you know, about, you know, what they're going through and uh, uh, really being appreciative of the efforts that we're having to uh, bring awareness to uh, this cause has been very positive uh, everywhere that I've gone. And then 2020 happened. <laughs> and then another mm-hmm. respiratory illness sort of took yeah, right. uh, president. And, uh, you know, it, it became even more uh, poignant uh, to uh, talk about these uh, interstitial lung diseases uh, in, in, in a more uh, direct way, having, you know, obviously the advent of uh, COVID and uh, related things happening. So since I couldn't do the, uh, the sort of day-to-day and, and kind of traveling from city to city to do my awareness campaign, uh, we decided to utilize the song that I wrote for my dad as part of a, uh, an initiative to even uh, enhance uh, the, you know, the, the awareness process. So we decided to put lyrics to the tune, which was originally composed as an instrumental tune. And uh, we had a bit of a contest that uh, we had uh, about 70 uh, plus inquiries and uh, people trying to put lyrics to this tune. And uh, we had a winner and uh, the winner uh, was able to, uh, you know, to lend us his lyrics and we were able to record this tune and put lyrics to it. I turn a page of your story In the scrapbook of my memories Every day I think of what you've done for me And the breath of life you gave now, uh, it has a different uh, title, more poignant to the campaign, uh, but it's the same tune and uh, has been a source of great satisfaction, you know, having that sort of relive that tune that was made in 2001, more than 20 years ago, and kind of make it sort of a theme of this great campaign and uh, having lyrics put and breathe a new life, you know, literally breathe a new life to, to, the, to the song has been uh, one of the uh, sources of a uh, great source of pride. And, uh, and I know my dad is looking down and really happy with uh, what has happened with uh, the whole campaign uh, and the efforts that we're doing to raise awareness to you know, the thing that killed him. Absolutely. I'm sure he is. And, um, you know, just in case people aren't aware, when, when the pandemic sidelined your stadium appearances, you and BI launched this, uh, you called it, I think you called it the breathless ballad challenge, which was yeah, the, with the, the contest, right? The public <laughs> contest to write lyrics to the instrumental tribute to your father, which you mentioned, Para Don Berna. And, uh, I think you had a, a jury com- comprised of Queen Latifah, right? The Bacon Brothers and Paul Schaefer. And uh, there was also a, a documentary that BI sponsored, Beyond Breathless. So can you comment on what's next for the campaign? Well, I think we're trying to uh, maximize, you know, the platform that baseball uh, gives us every year, especially in the summer. We're trying to reach out to all these communities, uh, you know, that have uh, a major incident in these cases and uh, trying to, you know, spread the gospel about, you know, uh, early diagnosis and, uh, you know, uh, having people, you know, deal with the symptoms and not, not really procrastinating to go into the doctor and uh, get checked out. 
and uh, you know those efforts are you know they, they have proven to have an impact in, in, in many lives. Partnering with the uh, Pulmonary Fibrosis Foundation as well and doing some work with them, you know, in conjunction with this, they're all interconnected and uh, it has legs and uh, it has the ability to impact people in my community and, and uh, all over the country. Uh, and uh, I'm, you know, just very uh, delighted to be part of this process and the, the evolution of this process going into turning to lung health, incorporating music as a tool and as a resource. And uh, it's just kind of falling right in, into what I'm doing, you know, right now. Uh, and it's, uh, I'm very proud and uh, uh, very eager to continue the efforts uh, to, to raise awareness about uh, interstitial lung diseases. Sure. Yeah. Uh, I just have to ask you, Bernie, just a couple more questions and then we'll, we'll let you go today. Uh, but um, New York is, is a great sports town, uh, but the, the tri-state area is also one of the most media saturated regions probably in the world. So for professional athletes uh, like yourself, it must have been pretty distracting when there's always a you know, controversy swirling around and always a sports hero or team in the limelight or in the hot seat. But as a player, you had a reputation for remaining calm and collected and facing the media during the seasons and often the postseason, how did you remain "quote unquote" in the moment? I, I, ha- I had a uh, great deal of support from my family, and uh, I was one of those players that uh, always put the highest expectations on myself. Uh, so I expected, obviously, to be criticized when I was not holding up to my own expectations and obviously the expectations of the team. And I think that sort of kept me grounded. I, it kept me striving for more, striving to be the best player that I could be uh, in a particular season. Uh, we had a great group of people in that clubhouse that sort of stayed together through thick and thin. We had each other's backs, uh, backs and uh, we were really pulling for one another during those years. Uh, it really allowed us to be very successful in a very tight unit. Uh, it's not that we were against the media or, you know, all the, uh, the, the challenges that that, uh, would entail, but we were, uh, really a, a group of people that were really about our business, uh, not really being distracted by, uh, anything other than playing baseball and bringing a championship to the city of New York a year in and year out. Uh, we had an owner that was very committed to invest in every ounce of effort into making this team a winner. And we had a manager that was uh, very clear in his, uh, you know, mandate and a very galvanizing person, you know, a, a buffer between the media and the players, between the front organization, front office, and the players. We, he really let us play our game. Uh, and we're talk, I'm talking about the, the person of Joe Torrey, our uh, beloved manager at that time. And, uh, you know, the Steinbrenners really put a great team together, really spent the money, keeping us together for a long time. And uh, that really uh, made me feel that I was safe. Uh, and uh, it really allowed me to, uh, uh, you know, make some mistakes and knowing that I still have the, you know, the backing of the team and uh, really made me play at my best in the situations that counted the most. And, uh, you know, that, that's a really important thing, you know, not having the uncertainty to being run out of town if you make a mistake. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I really count a lot. Yeah. Uh, uh, and having the, the set of expectations that I had that were putting in a, a very high, high regard. I was not uh, satisfied just to be part of uh, just to be part of the group. I wanted to be the best. And I had a group of players that really had that same mentality. So uh, it was just a, a great uh 
perfect storm of circumstances that allowed me to uh, perform at the best of my ability. Absolutely. And, um, you know, you became one of the most beloved Yankees. Um, uh, I don't have to tell people out there, but how, how do you control stress? Do you, do you have stress in your life today? And what, what kind of mechanisms do you use to uh, keep it under control? Well, stress is, is uh, you know, obviously something that uh, as a baseball player, you have to deal with on a daily basis. I mean, it, it doesn't matter how good you are. Uh, you always have to live up to the expectations and, the uncertainty of what you don't know what's going to happen, what you don't know is going to happen. You know, you have uh, baseball is a very uh, uh, interesting game in, in the sense that uh, you practice and you work so hard, and then when you play the game, you have no idea of what you know how the things are going to unfold, how the situation is going to the game is going to dictate your performance uh, and how your performance is going to be. Uh, so having that kind of Stress, you know, obviously playing in the, the media, obviously the mega media place that New York is, you have to create some sort of a mechanism to be uh, uh, what I call sort of a Teflon kind of mentality. Uh, you know, you, you take the criticism that is constructive and will help you uh, enhance your performance. And then you have to discard everything else because if you kind of listen to everything that everybody's saying, uh, you go into this mental kind of like roller coaster of over, over emotions where you are so down when you're doing bad and so high when you're doing well that uh, it's not very conducive to uh, a good performance in the long run. So you got to stay very level-headed. Uh, it doesn't matter how good you do or how bad you do. You always have that level-headed mentality. And that you can apply in every aspect of your life. You know, you always think, hey, my mentality was, you don't, you, I'm not as good as I think that I am. But uh, conversely, I'm not as bad as, as I think <laughs> that I am either. So Somewhere in the middle. Right? A, a, a mental uh, sort of uh, uh, the capacity to stay level uh, really gives me a lot of comfort and uh, a lot of confidence and uh, uh, a, a lot of certainty in the way that I'm going to approach circumstances. As long as I'm prepared and I do my uh, due diligence, uh, that can minimize stress a lot. Uh, in dealing with uh, circumstances like baseball, uh, it was definitely a, a great test uh, in uh, how to deal with stress. And uh, surviving that, I figured that I could probably uh, be able to do a lot of other things in my, uh, what I would call normal life right now. <laughs> right, right. As, as a civilian, right? Yeah. Well, I, I, this has been, this has been, uh, fascinating and, and so, so, um, uh, great. Uh, but I, I can't let you go, Bernie, without, you know, given the fact that spring training is now well underway, uh, got to get your take on, on the upcoming baseball season. And, um, you know, who do you think, uh, is, uh, is favored to, to, to win this year? Well, I think that, uh, you know, it can only talk about my perspective from sort of a former Yankee alumni and, uh, I mean, luckily, uh, we, we've sort of formed, uh, you know, kind of develop a reputation of uh, excellence and having all these world championships and baseball and, and things like that. So with that, I would say that I am very uh, happy that the Yankees were able to uh, retain Aaron Judge. They uh, mm -hmm. automatically make them, uh, immediately make, them, make him the captain of the team. I think there, he is the, one of those guys that kind of comes, comes once in a generation they'll be able to build a team around him because he's going to be there for a long time. Uh, we're just hoping that he remains healthy for most of his tenure with the Yankees. And uh, I, I think that in my humble opinion, you know, there were times, you know, 
uh, especially more, most recently when, when I was playing in, in those years, where the road uh, to the World Series came through New York. Uh, and, uh, you know, the Yankees were the team to beat back in those days. I think that sort of attitude has changed through time. Maybe the last five or maybe five, seven years, I think it has shifted towards the South. I think, uh, in the, at least in the American League, the way that the Yankees uh, are, were, are going to be able to win that championship, it has to be for Houston. They got to uh, overcome that hurdle that has sort of uh, plagued uh, them for the last couple of years. They got to be able to beat that team. And uh, uh, I think they have sort of equipped themselves uh, this year with the tools to make that happen. I think, you know, every year the Yankees always have a, the possibility to, to win the World Series. And that's uh, obviously by design. And I'm glad that they uh, have themselves, you know, a great opportunity this year as well. Great. Yeah. The, the, the challenge is, is, is in front of them. They know what it is, and, but they made a great step in, 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 in locking up judge for the long term. That, that's definitely. Absolutely. A, a great, I, I totally agree with that. Yeah. Great. Well, um, obviously this is a very personal, um, issue for you, uh, you know, raising awareness for, for lung diseases and, uh, losing a parent is incredibly hard, but you're taking that loss and helping other people to cope with their illness. And that's a very special thing indeed. So thanks so much for joining us, Bernie. Really enjoyed it. And so gracious. So, so thank you again. No, I appreciate the opportunity to tell my story and uh, I really thank you. I uh, feel very grateful and uh, looking forward to what the future holds with this campaign and, uh, you know, the future of the Yankees this year. And uh, it's all great things. Absolutely. Social media, Instagram, TikTok, Twitter, YouTube, social media update. And this is the part of the broadcast when we welcome Jack O'Brien to tell us what's trending on healthcare social media. Hey, Jack. Hey there, Mark. I suppose it's time to add Woody Harrelson to the list of celebrities and prominent figures who have espoused doubts about the COVID-19 pandemic, the cause of the nationwide lockdowns, and the subsequent rollout of vaccines. During his opening monologue while hosting SNL last weekend, Harrelson described the plot of a movie script he was pitched by taking a not-so-subtle dig at Big Pharma in the process. Okay, so the movie goes like this. The biggest drug cartels in the world get together and buy up all the media and all the politicians and force all the people in the world to stay locked in their homes. And people can only come out if they take the cartel's drugs and keep taking them over and over. I threw the script away. I mean, who is going to believe that crazy idea of being forced to do drugs? I do that voluntarily all day long. Clip courtesy of Broadway videos and NBC. After the monologue aired, Harrelson quickly came under fire for comparing pharma companies to drug cartels and using what critics deemed as language critical of the COVID-19 vaccines. BuzzFeed said his monologue was filled with, quote, COVID conspiracy jokes, while Rolling Stone stated that the actor spread, quote, anti-vax conspiracies while on the show. Meanwhile, Harrelson earned the approval of Elon Musk, who tweeted, good one, in reference to a video of his monologue that was uploaded to Twitter. Musk has long been vocal in questioning the measures taken to curb the spread of the COVID-19 virus, recently releasing the Twitter files dedicated to addressing the alleged suppression of COVID-19 critics on the social media platform. Now, it's worth knowing this is not Harrelson's first foray into controversy regarding the COVID-19 pandemic and his thoughts regarding the pharmaceutical industry. In a nearly two-hour-long appearance on Club Random with Bill Maher in September, Harrelson expressed skepticism about the role of large pharmaceutical companies in addressing the COVID-19 pandemic. He also criticized people who doubted the effectiveness of antivirals like hydroxychloroquine and ivermectin for treating COVID-19. 
It's worth noting that while both drugs have been touted by some, most notably Joe Rogan, as treatments for COVID-19, the FDA has issued multiple cautions against using either antiviral for this purpose. The FDA also stated that neither are approved for traditional or emergency use for treating COVID-19 and can lead to other health ailments if used incorrectly. My favorite part of Woody's monologue was when he referenced his last appearance in November 2019 and that his appearances are usually followed by a Sunday, which is some, somewhat unique among SNL hosts. Anyway, uh, the other thing that was uh, interesting to me was the absolute silence in the audience when he made his vaccines reference. So it, it just kind of sh- shows that and until oxygen was added to this, uh, it basically it, it kind of would have died on the vine. I mean, here's Harrelson kind of summing up what conspiracy theorists see as, as quote unquote, the COVID scam by comparing pharma companies to drug cartels, which, as you point out, you know, is just a flat out unwarranted comparison, to say the least. Um, And then mainstream media calls it like it is, which is, you know, then leads to a predictable uh, anti, you know, predictable response from the anti-vax movement of, see, we told you the media are in pharma's pocket. So it's just a proof point that we're trapped in this, you know, very polarizing media cycle. And uh, needless to say, the endorsement of Elon Musk didn't help much. Yeah, it's, it's interesting because we were talking off air uh, just about the controversy and kind of how it falls into this very predictable media cycle of something happens, backlash, you know, both sides run to their camps and then we, we move on. Obviously, there will be another SNL this week, just like there was a whole show after he made those remarks. But that, that silence did stand out to me. I was watching the show live and, you know, obviously I, I cover pharma for a living and it's it's one thing to kind of see the industry talked about in that sort of way. But then to see even just lay people you know, sitting there waiting for a, a comedy, a variety show to, to come off and hearing these, you know, kind of what some may consider outlandish remarks uh, was certainly something else. And it's, it's not for a lack of praising Woody Harrelson's acting career, which has been varied and esteemed, but didn't really uh, didn't really hit the mark as it related to that monologue. And, right. And the SNL audience didn't buy it. Uh, but obviously there's, uh, you know, some areas of the country uh, that, that, that does, uh, cater to, uh, and, uh, it was given oxygen and, uh, it, it, again, it led to a very predictable cycle. So, um, you know, does this knock down Woody Harrelson's, uh, uh, you know, esteem in my eyes? Uh, uh probably not, you know, uh, given, given his, uh, uh, former antics, you know, in terms of, uh, espousing these questionable views. I I have a lot of respect for him as a, as a comedian and an actor, a comedic actor. Uh, but I don't, you know, put much stock in, in what he says, uh, from, uh, you know, peddling these, these kind of unwarranted conspiracy theories anyway. So my two cents. Yeah. It won't, it won't stop us from watching cheers or zombie land. Exactly. It's just another consideration. So, right. That's it for this week. If you like this episode, please give it a thumbs up. Better yet, subscribe on your podcasting platform of choice and help others discover the show. The MMNM Podcast is produced by Bill Fitzpatrick, Deborah Stahl, Bradley Weems, and Gordon Failer. Our theme music is by Sizzy M. Sohn. We're out every week. Thanks for listening. We'll see you next time.